so damn hot. Milk was a bad choice. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where there's nothing quite like the smell of cold breast milk poured over a hot engine in Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 74, which begins with the bullet farmer, who's come from the bullet farm and is still on a warpath, and it ends with Max returning to the war rig with supplies taken from the Peacemaker. Back again for another day is Eric Nash from the Almost Famous Minute Podcast. Yeah, hey guys. Glad to be back on here on Wednesday. It's good to have you. When we left off on Monday, the Peacemaker was storming its way past the tree, reminding us just how dangerously close the bullet farmer, who's come from the bullet farm, is to the war rig. And it really hammers home the necessity of moving the war rig further away. Because the Peacemaker is not slowing down, and the bullet farmer is not letting up on his ridiculous use of bullets nope as you said before he is on a warpath and i think at this point the bullet farmer himself the individual really has nothing to lose so why not just go for it and he doesn't care about the rest of the individuals Hmm. in the car tanker with him so this past weekend as we're recording it not this past weekend as the episodes are dropping but julia you went to a baby shower for a friend of ours And because it was a baby shower that the husbands were not invited to, I went out shooting with a friend of mine. And so we went out to the range and I got to try and use the handgun that I was given for my birthday. Once again, discovering that I'm not as good of a shot as I thought I was. But then again, you don't practice. I don't practice. So what can I expect? Anyway, the rules on the range were you pick up your casings and you throw them in the casings bucket. That's if you don't want to bring them home for reloading and stuff. But all I can think of as I see the Peacemaker <laughs> driving through is like, he's not picking up any of his casings that fall out of that thing. If the tracks from the war rig should suddenly get filled in or something like that, all they'd have to do is follow the trail of casings from the bullet farmer. He's Hanseling Gretling his way across <laughs> this bog where instead of breadcrumbs, it's little brass casings. Because he does not stop shooting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's that, that much of a nut about bullets and firing them. You know, it's this kind of disregard for the environment that got the world in this position in the first place. Yeah. Pick up your litter, people. Don't be a litter bug like the uh, bullet farmer here. But let's leave him behind for a little while because we join up with the war rig again. And Nux is doing this thing where he's out in front just kind of jogging ahead of the war rig and i am wondering what you two think about this like why is nux out front of the war rig is it is it something like you know i mean he's i mean it's 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 pretty self-sacrificing but it's it's um a matter of you know any any kind of mines anything like that you know any or booby traps much like what we're talking about max going back to do for the bullet farmer but um you know, you know, just just in a, in a not not self sacrificing way though. It's 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 to keep to keep an, to have a better eye on in this foggy condition of what's going on in front of them. 
I really like Maybe. the idea of yeah. a booby trap. Yeah. Because <laughs> if the war party, who was still stuck in the muck way back, if they were able to get unstuck and were able to take a wide path around and get ahead of them mm. and lay a trap for the war rig, just like the war rig did for them, that would be pretty awesome. But my personal thoughts as to why he is running in front, I didn't really have one until on Monday, Rick, you told us the story of how clicks were named about how many steps you take equals oh, yeah. a kilometer. So I'm wondering if he's pacing out half a click. That's a very good idea. Yeah. I like both of those. My guess is that he was checking for soft spots. Oh, okay. Well, that's probably the right answer, because that's really good. Because if he's jogging out in front of the war rig and he hits a particularly muddy spot, if he sinks into it, the war rig will definitely sink into it. And if he can throw up his hands and be like, whoa, stop, soft ground, don't drive over here, then Furiosa can slow the war rig down because they're not really going that fast, so... It wouldn't be any big thing for her. But I also like the idea that they don't know exactly what this area is all about. There could be mines from a different group or past ventures with the Citadel party or any other raider group. There could be a need for him to be measuring things because the war rig might not have a working odometer. That might not be a thing that they would want to invest time and energy into. Let's, let's, let's just say probably pretty likely. Yeah. I really like all three ideas. I think they're all plausible. It is kind of funny, though, that it's the Half-Life, the cancer-ridden war boy, <laughs> that is out running in front of the tanker, though. He is arguably the least healthy out of all of them. Although, how much running do you think the wives actually got to do in the harem? Probably not a lot. No, but they've done a fair amount of running since leaving the harem. I mean, it was just Monday that they were running alongside the rig. Which is why I like the idea of the counting, because the war boys just might, I'm not saying they are, but they just might have perfected that gate. Be like, okay, if I run this way, if I run at this speed, that'll be the way to measure it type of thing. All of these ideas are pretty good, considering that we get no explanation otherwise. It, it would have been nice if he had, you know, we, we could just barely hear it under his breath. Two, three, four. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> just a little number count in there. But instead of any sort of explanation, we cut right to Nux standing on the front of the war rig and he is pouring water into the radiator, doing what Max was doing back when Cheeto tried to make a break for it. And as we cut out to a wider shot, we find that not only is Nux pouring something into the radiator, but the DAG is there perched up on the engine and she is pouring something else over the air intake on the back engine. Now, that water looks awfully uh, cloudy, a little milky, which means that it is absolutely mother's milk, which just seems like an interesting choice. I guess if it's what you got, it's what you got. But I'm just glad they're pouring the, the mother's milk on the outside of the engine and not trying to incorporate it into the inner workings of the cooling system. Yeah, I think that would be dumb. These intakes, so they're like pretty hot, right? I think every part of that engine is well, hot, yeah. but I think a lot of the heat from the engine is radiating up through the engine, and so cooling off those intakes would be the first step. Okay. Have either of you ever burnt milk when you're cooking? Nope. First of all, milk burns really quick, and it smells. So this is not pleasant. Yeah, I made that crack about 
cold breast milk on a hot engine. And I didn't expect it to smell good then when I made the crack. I definitely don't expect it to smell good now that we're actually talking about it. Yeah. (laughs) The whole concept of it is just deeply worrying. And milk is also very sticky, especially breast milk, um, because it has a lot of like sugars and stuff in it. Uh, So it's getting all over what's left of the engine panels. And it's, first of all, baking on to those engine panels, burning on there. And then it's going to dry and start to go bad. And it's going to be sticky and gross, and it's never coming off. It really paints in a different light how much of a difficult situation it's going to be in later on in the movie when Nux has to climb down into the engine cavity to fix the engines. It's going to smell so bad. It probably smelled bad to begin with, but it's going to smell especially bad now. It's too bad they don't have anything else. <laughs> Doesn't like everything in, in this in this time frame in this setting post apocalyptic post apocalyptic. Yeah, smell bad. I expect everything does yeah. smell bad. You can't go to the grocery store for your deodorant. Yeah, because yeah. that milk is already no longer fresh. It's certainly not cold. It's room temperature. Well, I supposed that it was cold. Because when would it have gotten cold? Well, I supposed that it was cold because I thought maybe the tanker might be insulated in some way, like a thermos, or but maybe how would the it have night gotten cold? cold to begin with? What temperature do you think milk is when it comes out of the human body? Well, I'm just thinking maybe Joe has a swamp cooler or something like that. He's got giant reservoirs that he pulls water up into. Maybe he fills the bottles with mother's milk and then he drops the bottles into the water that he pumps up out of the ground. Spring water can be pretty cold. Yes, spring water is very cold. So maybe he employs a swamp cooler (laughs) to keep the milk good for longer. And then he pumps it into the tanker and he seals it up. And then maybe all the the moving quickly would keep a lot of the heat off of it. I don't know. I just I don't want to entertain the idea that when they turn the faucet on the milk portion of the tanker that they just get cottage cheese. Okay. Or worse. No, no. I can't believe for okay. <laughs> oh. I can't believe we have not discussed the goodness versus badness, the spoiledness of the milk before. <laughs> I don't think the milk is spoiled yeah. per se. It's just not fresh anymore. And honestly, I mean, I can Google it right now. You know what they should do? And now it, it's way too late for this because they're already out on the road and they're not in a position to modify the tanker at all. But they should have a giant mechanism on top of the tanker. That way, as they roll along, they can move this mechanism and turn the mother's milk into butter or something like that. You're not going to like what I just Googled. Oh, what did you just find? Freshly pumped breast milk can stay out at room temperature for approximately five to eight hours. Really? That's it. This milk is bad. Huh. And honestly, do we see them consume it? I don't think we do. Not this week. I think back when they were their first stop after leaving the Citadel, they were washing up and getting rid of their chastity belts. I think if we had seen them drinking it then, that would have been cool. Because it was fresh still, but not anymore. How long does it last when it's refrigerated in some way? A a good week. I'm trying desperately (laughs) to justify them filling this tanker with mother's milk. I really hope it's that week that you said there, Eric. Okay, refrigerated for five days. Okay. Freezer for up to 12 months. 
Whoa. So if they took the breast milk from the milking mothers, put it in a swamp cooler type situation, and then once there was enough of it, they dropped it right into the tanker and got it to the bullet farm or gas town within that, you know, five to seven day span, they could in theory get that mother's milk out to the people who want to drink it and have it still be good. But they would definitely be riding the line, so to speak. That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> well, ma- maintaining the insulation, I think, on the on the tankers, I think that's that's a high priority for, you know, pr- previous to this and the whole, you know, uh, execution of their way of of doing things organized, you know, with these with these ver- these what at least three towns, right? Mm-hmm. System um, that that was that was an amazing thing, and and just rewatching this on a, on a loop, and and I see those I see those blades <laughs> stuck in the side. <laughs> it's like um, okay, that's really bad for the insulation. So in this case, at this point, this tanker's I think has had it, and they should be getting the milk out of there quick. I think. Yeah, I can only imagine how much of a hassle it must be for the war boys that have to climb into the tanker once they're done making their deliveries and it's emptied of mother's milk, get in there and scrub it down so that way they don't have just old milk taking Mm. the inside. Yeah, Mm. it's really gross. It really is. It's also entirely possible and probable that they just have a different standard of what is good and bad. Yeah. Because food and liquid and particularly the nourishment level of mother's milk is scarce. They might look at extra chunky mother's milk as a delicacy of a sorts. They're like, hmm, something to really chew on. That's really gross. (laughs) And that's also not how it works. (laughs) It goes sour first. Oh, okay. So the first thing that happens is it just doesn't taste good. But if there's no food, then that's fine. Yeah. You can handle that. (laughs) The important thing in this minute happens right around the 32nd mark. As Furiosa is walking down along the length of the tanker, there is a flash and a thundering in the distance that causes all of the crows to just scatter from the trees. Something is happening half a click back down the road. And based on what we saw on Monday and... The things that he was carrying, we can just assume that it was Max putting those thunder stick charges to good use. Now, we don't get to see what's happening. Can I drag us back to the milk subject just one last time real quick? Sure. Okay, I have in front of me a global map of lactose tolerance. And in Australia, it's only like between 30 and 50 percent of people are lactose tolerant. So there's a decent amount of people here who can't even consume this milk. It makes them sick. That's unfortunate. It is. All right. That's I'm done with breast milk now. Okay. We can move on. So getting back to Max, uh, we're deprived of seeing how he takes care of the peacemaker. But does anybody have a scenario in their head that they want to paint for us to get an idea of how you think he took out the peacemaker? I think that he set the same type of landmine-esque traps that he set before, except I think he only had two charges from what you can tell from Monday's Minute and a can of gas. So I think instead of making two rows in the tire tracks to kind of cover all the bases of where a vehicle might go, he just set one. Mm -hmm. A big one. And trying to think of how he would 
guarantee that it went off. He comes back bloody. So he must have been close enough. Although he comes back with stuff that would have been damaged if you just blew up the thing. Mm. So it kind of seems like maybe he got his booty first and then blew up the tank. Eric, what do you think happened? Well, I, I like a little bit of what you're saying there, Julia, that, that you know, him, him being bloody, you know, and I almost kind of wonder, like, if, if he, with, with, a, with that bigger explosion, he, it would have, you know, he got lucky and it wasn't right on top of the vehicle of the, of the, uh, but you say peacemaker, pacemaker, peacemaker. Yeah. Peacemaker. Um, and maybe it's with that big of an explosion, you know, it was close enough where maybe like it threw it and it hopefully threw it. He, he was, he was expecting it to go to one side versus another. And he was on that side waiting. That's when he had the knife with him. So he then went in for the kill. I think the, uh, the ending finishing move in my mind what he did is he planted the charges in the ground like one right next to each other and then he took the gas can and he leaned it up against the whatever the little pin at the front of the charge would be called the thing that depresses and then explodes the charge and so he had this gas can sitting up right in the middle of the road and it was leaning against the charges and that extra height the peacemaker would obviously hit it either with one of its treads or the center of the vehicle and that would set off the charges and so the charges would initially explode but the gas would make the explosion bigger with the express goal of disabling the vehicle either flipping it or making so that it can't roll forward anymore basically he wants to knock everybody off the vehicle and get them in a position where he can go in with that knife and just one by one hack him away I like the idea of him personally killing people with the knife because is it in today's minute or Friday's minute that Toast says, are you okay? You're covered in blood. It's not this minute. That's (laughs) Friday. That's Friday's minute. She's very solemn about it. Like this is telegraphing something very, very serious. So I like the idea that he had to personally kill people with a knife in order to get this particular job done. And it had to be done, but it's still a very somber thing. So, Rick, I like your idea. Because it's one thing to run someone over. It's one thing to throw a thunderstick into their car. It's another thing to go person by person and either straight up stab or slash or just dispose of them in that way. And doing it that way would definitely preserve the items that you want to take. It would preserve the guns and the weapons and the ammunition because the whole idea is that you stop the forward momentum of the car and throw everybody off of it. That way you can go and collect what you need without completely destroying this car. Because as we saw from behind the scenes material, the Peacemaker is literally a tank. That thing is an engine, a steel frame and treads like it is not a pushover. And so an explosion this big would definitely hurt it, but it wouldn't kill it in the same way that some of these smaller flamethrowing buggies would just get obliterated. The Peacemaker is as mighty and scary and strong as like the People Eater's limo and the Giga Horse. It's just condensed down into this nimble little package for us. So Max would, of course, have to get creative to take it out. And I love that we don't know what happened. I love that he runs off into the sand mist and then big explosion and then comes back. 
it treats us, the viewer, the same way that he's treating the wives, which doesn't usually happen to us. We usually see a lot more than the wives do. We usually know more than they do. But in this case, we know exactly what they know and we see exactly what they see. He's taking care not to subject them to this particular kind of horror. And the movie as a whole, I know it carries an R rating for violence, correct? Like violence and blood. But there are lines that this movie does not cross. And showing us this scene definitely would have crossed that gore line. Yeah. And the movie doesn't need that. Do you really want to have to watch Max walk between a bunch of half-burned guys as they're crawling away on the ground and then he puts a boot on their back and just slits them across the throat. Like, do we really want to watch our hero coup de grace people? Absolutely not. Because you know where we've seen that behavior before? We saw it in Road Warrior in the very beginning with the scout parties and the raiders just taking down a scout buggy and gratuitously destroying them. Hmm. So we have seen that in this series from the bad guys. We don't want to see it from our good guy. All we really get to see are these crows flying away. And I have to say, I kind of like the inclusion of crows in this scene because there was a lot of talk back when we were watching that first movie about the sound of crows in the distance and what they signify as far as the presence of bad people. It feels like this is where the crows live. Yeah. This just seems like their home. And so, yeah, seeing them roused and all over the place, it takes that sometimes subtle signifier from Mad Max 79 and just blows it up. In case anybody was curious, this is a bad place. You don't want to hang around here if you can help it. (laughs) (laughs) And another thing that adds to the mystique of this place... As the wives are standing around, after cooling off the engine, we see Furiosa from behind, and there is a figure coming out of the mist, and she raises her gun to point it at it. Because while I don't expect the bullet farmer or one of his imperators to just be walking up to the war rig like this, I also wouldn't put it past them. Imperators are bold individuals. They have to be to get that promotion, that title. And you really can't be sure. No, you can't. She's absolutely doing the right thing. Imperators, like you said, they're the best. They're the ones who are still alive. So I would not put it past an Imperator who survived and was able to kill Max to take his jacket to mimic his profile and then head back in the general direction that Max came from, maybe be able to sneak up on someone. Yeah. And I do like how uh, her raising the gun isn't, all that fast it's not it's not extremely slow but you know there's there's a slowness to it you know and she's just she's just trying to really you know get a read on who that is and not not uh be too fast about it and too too anxious in a way i think yeah she doesn't feel an immediate threat uh she is playing it safe and thankfully she plays it safe enough that max is able to emerge from the mist and we get to see that all right he's In one piece, he's got a steering wheel and he's dragging a bag along the ground. He doesn't have the gas tank anymore, but he does have a bandolier of ammunition slung over his shoulder. So we're going to get a closer look at all of the things that he's collected when we come back on Friday. Before I wrap the episode, though, does anybody have anything they want to throw in here at the end of this minute? 
Uh, just the, the for like the, the latter half of the minute, roughly. Um, it's the, the the music here is. I mean, there's a combination with some of the very very far off sound effects of the explosion and so forth. But um, it's just the music itself also is kind of. It's almost like the music is placed there as well. You know, it's like the music is coming from there. Much like you know, we got the whole um, uh, doof guy, right? Mm. That's his name <laughs> with the uh, guitar. Yep. Um, but in this case, we know it's um, we know it's not actual music coming from anyone, but uh, it, it gives it that nice little feeling. It's just very subtle and but uh, but uh, kind of ominous and threatening too. Same time. That is the name of this week: ominous yeah. and threatening. <laughs> but as for us, we are going to. Put a pin in things for now. We will be coming back on Friday where Max will open up his bag of goodies. The war rig will get moving again and we'll get to see those stilt guys. You know, the ones I'm talking about. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 74 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time. <laughs>